Welcome to the Gateway Research Organization podcast. Research and extension led by farmers for farmers. Come grow with us. I am Amber with Gateway Research Organization. We're a nonprofit association based out of Westlock, Alberta, and we're going to be running these networking nights with Greener Pastures Ranching every second Wednesday throughout the winter. The link is going to remain the same, so there's no need to re-register if you are already registered. So the layout of these nights is it's conversational. Um, If you have a question, just throw it into chat and then we take them in order. So tonight we have Nicole Masters with us and a little secret that some of you might not know, Nicole was actually with us. She was our first speaker on our very first Wednesday night networking session. We didn't record it. And then enough of you guys yelled at us about not recording it that we figured we better start recording them because she wasn't actually on the podcast. We thought that we really need her to come back. And it was amazing information that she brought to us last time. And I'm expecting it to be so much better. So our expectations are high, Nicole, (laughs) just so you're prepared. So with that being said, Steve, do you want to introduce Nicole a little bit more and talk a little bit about Greener Pastures Ranching? Yes, you bet. Thank you, Amber. Uh, My name is Steve Kenyon with Greener Pastures Ranching, and uh, we started up this Wednesday night networking uh, last winter. Uh, COVID was kind of shutting everything else down. And the big thing that I noticed that we were missing in our industry was the networking, the networking after a conference or around the coffee table at a conference. And and that was totally lacking. I was doing, you know, webinar presentations and I was talking to a bunch of black screens and you couldn't tell if anybody was there. So uh, I've, I just thought we needed to do this networking. So I'm, I'm happy that we're uh, doing this and it's been far more successful than we ever thought it would be. And big thanks to the Gateway Research Organization for sponsoring speakers. Uh, we're doing it every second Wednesday this winter. And, uh, you know, we'll probably shut her down here once the spring starts, but uh, everybody gets too busy. But yeah, I'm excited to have Nicole Masters back. Uh, She's one of our regenerative rock stars. Um, She's uh, always there to to answer questions and, and uh, she's one of my, my mentors. And, and uh, I, what do you, what do you call yourself? The soil nerd or you're my, you're my soil nerd anyway. Yeah. You were calling me a nerd. I was highly offended. (laughs) (laughs) Soil geek, I think. (laughs) Oh yeah. There you go. There you go. Uh, But yeah, we, we uh, are grateful that she's here tonight and we're going to talk about uh, some soil health and water and you know how, how that affects water infiltration and the water cycle and wherever we want to go with questions uh, nicole's very knowledgeable in in all of those things so i'm excited to have her here so nicole if you want to give you a little tidbit here and what what do you think we should kind of start with on our topics here today and get us started i would really like to hear from people i guess what's something that would be really worth deep diving into. I often feel like these sessions we, you know, we kind of skim along the edge and some big picture stuff. So it's kind of nice sometimes to dig in if that's what you want to do. I feel, especially this time of year in Montana, like you start to feel pretty enclosed and isolated and I'm being asked to talk about like these global issues and I'm like, I don't even watch the news. I have no idea. I, I noticed the geese are flying North right now. Like <laughs> that's my global perspective. Yeah. It's just a really interesting reflective time, but we're also at coming towards the end of our create school, which is the coach, the coaches school and really starting to see that come to life. So I'm very excited about that coaching school. Very cool. So you're doing the coaches, coaches school, and I'm up here in Canada teaching the train, the mentors school, (laughs) kind of a unique or uh, coincidence in that. So explain the coaches, coaches school. 
Yeah. So it's called CREATE, which stands for Consciously Regenerating Ecosystems in Agriculture Through Transformative Experiences. But it's aimed at those, and that's a mouthful, right? But it's aimed at people that are interested in, you know, they've gathered all this wisdom, some of the best graziers in the world, some of the best um, food producers who are now ready to coach others. And so it's not the course to come and learn about grazing or learn about potassium. Although we cover all of those topics, it's more to round people off so that they're they're better able to step into this world of, of coaching or, you know, what does it look like going into the future? We can't have these models of I'm the expert and I, I have all the answers or um, here's the product and here's the prescription. And all you need to do is this and, and that's going to solve all your problems. We need people that are able to engage and foster creative thinkers because that's what the whole planet needs right now. Nicole, just for the people like, I know it's so easy to assume that everyone knows you, but for the people who don't know you yet, can you talk a little bit about your background and how you got into the stuff that you're doing now? My name's Nicole Masters, not Masters, just so you know, Steve, for future reference. Um, (laughs) I'm an agroecologist. I'm the author of the book For the Love of Soil. Um, I've been working in this space for 24 years now, which really kind of ages me. I started out actually with a science degree in soil science and ecology. And after I left that, went into managing community gardens my father helps. We set up a property together. We got into wetland restoration. We planted 700 avocado trees. We run a Gelfie bull stud. And to create income for myself, I became a worm farmer. So it, it, it kind of started from these chaotic beginnings and has over time shaped into what has now become Integrity Soils, which is an international education company. Uh, we do workshops I, I, I don't know, I speak to probably 10,000 people a year. I think if we had to look at the audiences that we're speaking to and COVID has certainly changed that. But yeah, education really is our primary goal and it seems to be in any sector. So when COVID hit, uh, we were consulting directly to 1.4 million acres and we are now, we, we stopped the actual one-on-one consultancy with COVID. It got too challenging. And we now work with agencies that manage 24 million acres are looking at how do we regenerate these landscapes, bring water cycles back. So it's really interesting how, yeah, how you don't really know where your life is going to go and how it always works out perfectly. So right now I'm here in Montana in Big Timber and I have one cow, one calf, and a horse and a dog. And that's my livestock. And mostly we are living in a horse trailer and, and traveling. Very cool. <laughs> what would you say is your biggest learning that you've had throughout, you know, that background? What's the biggest like aha moment? Oh, there's so many. There's so many. But I think often it's ones where it's really made me sit back and realize how I was making assumptions or making judgments is where you get the slap. You know, so it's that reminder of don't assume. So when I was managing community gardens, we were um, given that land by the local city council and it was in a low socioeconomic area. And they were like, here, build a community garden uh, with no buy-in with the local community, with no negotiation or conversation with local community. And, you know, we're, we're building these garden beds and we're planting all these seedlings and 
for the good of the community and dealing with vandalism, dealing with people just trashing the place because there was no community discussion. And for me, that was that whole aha of you don't go into a place and put your context and your structure and your beliefs on top of somebody else. So it was a very good learning to have early on, I must say. But also I lived in Hong Kong when I was a teenager and I remember like, if I smell carbon monoxide, like if you're in the bottom level of a car parking building in a city, I always feel nostalgic because that's what Hong Kong smells like. And everything's covered in smog and there's like plastic bags everywhere and just waste. And as a, I think it was probably about 13, I kind of looked around and realized humans will live in their own waste unless something interrupts it, unless there's some kind of disturbance or interruption to that flow. As long as everyone's, you know, can consume the, that we're not going to see behavior change. And so for me, that's become one of those formative lessons of I'm going to continue to be an interruption. I'm going to be a shameless disturber of a, a trajectory that I, I believe is kind of leading us down the wrong way. That works for soil life too, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We need a little bit of disturbance. Like I think of a lot of Canadian soils as being the constipated soils. Sorry, that's offensive. Or the sleepy soils, right? So what happens is if you think of soil like um, a digestive system, your whole systems are shut down, right? That digestion is ground to a halt. And what we'll see are things like um, sagebrush or you'll see um, rose, the little, ro- the little briars, you'll see snowberries, those kind of plants. They're telling you that that soil's kind of gone to sleep. Um, and what it requires is an interruption. It needs a laxative. And that laxative could be the hooves of a, of a cattle beast and it's, you know, grazing process is the laxative for these landscapes. So, yeah, I think disturbance is really important. Um, optimizing disturbance. You know, we've gone too far with the industrial model of like continual disturbance and chemical disturbance and long-term disturbances that, um, I mean, there's landscapes here that we can still see the activity from the 1930s, you know, and, and we're still dealing with the consequences of major human disturbance. So, yeah, I have an interesting relationship with disturbance. Yeah, disturbance is kind of a, usually I look at that as a negative term, but it in reality, we can make it a positive term. But the, the problem is modern agriculture has done it way too much. Oh yeah, um, a little bit of change, maybe even even as a, a term, maybe not disturbance so much. Change is a good thing. A little bit of change here, a little bit of change there. I've got a couple of uh, pictures that I I put up in a presentation. Um, one of my pasture land, and I'm in the gray wooded soil zone. And then I've got a picture ten miles down the road uh, in the black soil zone. Right, that's mm-hmm. the good no till zero, you know, zero till land. That's the best black soil in the in the country. My soil is black between about six inches and 16 inches down black mm-hmm. soil and i'm in the gray wooded soil zone whereas in that black soil zone it's all brown you can't tell mm-hmm. the you can't see where the a horizon ends like it's just it's disgusting <laughs> but that's the good soil yeah, yeah we, need, I feel, we need to create our own soil for sure i feel disturbed by that yes no i, I i'd like to i'd like to keep pulling on this piece a little bit because fire is a disturbance Right. And we can see what's happening in, in California right now. That is a disturbance that is a degradation disturbance. Right. But a, a fast, cool fire that just whips across a grassland is a natural disturbance event. You know, and I think 
we've got fearful. I think sometimes it's watching, are we overcorrecting or being a reaction to what hasn't worked in the past? And then we go too far the other way, which is you see people now that are taking livestock off landscapes because, oh, you know, grazing is bad um, or totally removing fire because fire is bad. And landscapes, you know, you have some beautiful soils in California that uh, were human modified fire landscapes for, you know, thousands of years and they're beautiful soils. So we actually have a question in the chat right now. Linda, are you ready to go? Sure. Hi, go. Hi Nicole. Another Hi, Linda. Nice to see you. You too. Yeah. So we have not got any rain in Malta. Really haven't had much rain since uh, May of uh, 2020. You know how it is. And I'm working with quite a few farmers and ranchers who are really, we've been so excited about what we've learned from you this last summer and all the, all the presentations we went to. And so like we're trying to figure out, we have very little money. We're all ramped up ideas about regenerative ag, but what soil health testing could we do that we could afford that would be yeah. really informative, repeatable, that we'd be able to tell these are mostly, you know, we don't do a lot of crops here. It's um, a little bit of hay meadows, but mostly it's going to be dry grazed rangelands, uh, something we can compare from place to place and year to year. That's such a good question, Linda. Thank you. And uh, it kind of feeds a little bit into what we've had happen this year that we're very excited about, which is um, the Regen platform. We partnered up with VitaCycle in the UK, who developed Soil Mentor, to develop the Regen platform, which is, I already had a consultant level um, monitoring program that we've developed using Fulcrum. We, we pass it over to Soil Mentor, but it's very complex. Like it has hundreds of different measures that we're looking at. So their, their team said, well, if you could distill this down to just 10 indicators, then what would those indicators be? What we distilled were, if you only had 10 things that you could monitor when you were out in the field, what would they be? And what we've created is a platform that you can actually compare using your biome to your rainfall to your soil type, what is it that someone, where would I come in to in comparison with somebody else with that soil type biome and rainfall? So we we looked at um, percentage bare earth as being an indicator, which I'm sure all the graziers would agree with that as an indicator. We developed what we called the BRICS barometer, which is what is the difference between the, the photosynthetic capacity of a grass that you want and a plant species that you don't want. So looking at something that's undesirable and then looking at how big a difference is it between what you're wanting and what you don't want and who's winning that game of life. So whoever is photosynthesizing the highest is winning the game because they are drawing carbon down. They are feeding more microbiology. And if they are photosynthesizing higher, then they are dictating what's happening in that soil environment. So there's a BRICS barometer. Um, we talked about carbon, earthworms, infiltration tests. So looking at you know, is does your soil just soak in water immediately or do you have water repellency issues, nodulation? So often people have legumes growing on their property, but they're not actually fixing nitrogen. So digging up holes, taking a look, do you have lots of nodules on those legumes? Are they large um, and are they numerous? We did some workshops in Canada for a couple of years and in maybe a dozen workshops that we did, we found no nodules on any of the properties that we were digging in so it's like you you assume that we have a legume so it must be fixing nitrogen 
and nobody's digging holes. So digging a hole, taking a look at that. Then one of the other measures we use is rhizosheaths, right? So you're taking a look at that root system. Is Does it look like great big dirty dreadlocks? Is it covered with soil all the way down that root um, or are they clean? And if you have clean roots, which again, we see this a lot in Canada, and actually I've seen some beautiful rhizosheaths in Alberta, just saying on some of them. Um, some bison and cattle ranches, beautiful. But if you don't have a rhizosheath, so if there's no soil stuck to those roots and you just have naked roots, well, they're vulnerable to pH. Um, they're vulnerable to pH changes. They're vulnerable to temperature changes. There's no protection on those roots. Um, so if we're thinking about resilience and what are we going to do facing climactic variability, we need these rhizosheaths or what I call the Rastafarian roots. It's quite interesting. It seems to be if people are likely to get offended and want to go down the PC kind of thing with me, they seem to be um, middle-aged white guys, not just, uh, and that's not a generalization. That's an absolute truth. <laughs> They've been the ones that complain. And they, two people told me that I was being culturally inappropriate by using the term Rastafarian. So I got hold of a friend of mine who's Rastafarian and I said, what do you think about dreadlocks being like Rastafarian roots? So he contacted all his Facebook friends and the message that came back was, yeah, man, we're all about the roots. So they really like this idea. <laughs> so I'm like, thank you. You know, I mean, maybe I was being culturally misappropriated, but anyway, they liked it. Um, the other thing that we look at, look at is where is 80% of my root depth? And we dug on we dug on properties, and some of you were at these workshops, I can see. And we found, on average, people's root systems were only half an inch deep in the middle of these massive drought that we had. So I did workshops throughout uh, Colorado, Wyoming, South Dakota, Montana, other places. No rooting system. Eighty percent of their roots are half an inch deep. No wonder you've got a drought. You know where where are your Rastafarian roots, where's that root protection and where's that rooting depth? And nobody's digging holes. So, you know, pick, picking up that shovel and taking a look and saying, how resilient is my system? You know, they talk about when the colonials first came in here, driving through um, and breaking up the sod, you could hear the sound of those roots cracking and it sounded like a bullwhip a mile away. And now we go and have a look and it, you've got these teeny tiny little piddly naked roots that go ping. No one's hearing that from a mile away. Um, and then we do a slaking test, which is looking at how well do the aggregates stick together. And then we have a soil insect score. So looking at what kind of insect pressures have I got. In our sampling in Canada, we have found that the you guys have more livestock under the ground eating your plants than you have above ground. Something like, let's say 14 alfalfa, no, 14 clover root weevils will eat 2,200 pounds or 2,200 kilos of dry matter per hectare per year. So you want to dig holes. You want to take a look. What kind of insect pressures do I have under there? What kind of species are they? What kind of um, impact is that having? And how am I responsible for that? All right, so I'm, I'm going blah, blah, blah. But that's the 10 indicators that we're using. So if you take a look, if you Google Soil Mentor or Regen Platform or my name, actually it's on my website, um, go and have a look at the platform because it is very exciting. It is. Now, just a quick follow-up, Nicole. Penetrometers, some way of using that. We're, a lot of us are doing bale grazing and seeing amazing things. You know, club moss, you can't get that thing in the ground at all. It's a clay pan site and you put a bale on it and you feed one year and you can bury that penetrometer. But we're wondering, I mean, 
we love to do it, but is that a valid measure? Is that something that's really repeatable or is, are we really just looking at soil moisture when we do that? Are we looking at a change in the soil or just simply moisture? Uh, both, both. And I think it's a good observation to make because moisture is certainly going to make that penetrometer slide in more. Now that I'm mo- mainly working in semi-arid kind of environments, the penetrometer seems to have less value. If, however, you do have irrigated ground or you you know, do have higher rainfall, like above 20 inches, then maybe that penetrometer is worthwhile. But what you've done there, Linda, by being able to test inside where you've done the bale grazing or people that are doing swath grazing, like you can walk across swaths and see the same thing. Penetrometer slides in or it's like rock. Now your number one limiting factor is not nitrogen. It's not phosphorus, it's air. And the penetrometer is a really cool test um, for you to be able to assess in the field. And you all have one because you use, um, when we stick in an electric fence, you've got that instant, oh, no way is that going into the ground. Oh, there's something else about that that's really cool. I was on some properties two years ago in Colorado. And you know how we talk about the ground freezing and like the ground being solid frozen. That's something I hear from Albertans, right? And then, you know, we get flash floods because the snow melts and it can't go in because the ground's frozen. We dug two trenches, um, one on a property that had been very badly managed and it was solid ice and we could barely get that backhoe through the ground at all. And then we dug on a property that had been not doing great management. They just had taken livestock off. There was perennial grasses in there. And that backhoe went through like a knife through butter. And I had this whole aha moment. We're only seeing ice in that because you haven't got biological activity because you have got compaction. That whole ground solid frozen, maybe, you know, further up north, you know, if you're above latitude 60, but around here, it's it's a soil health indicator. I don't know if you've seen that, Steve. Yeah, I I got a lot to add to that, but I forget most of it now. <laughs> uh, the the hard compaction, ground, yeah, the hard ground. I found that with my backhoe as well. I had a discussion with Dr. Chris Nichols here a little while ago too. She was talking about trying to get soil microbiology activity as many days out of the year as you can, and she's talking 250 days out of the year. Kind of one of my aha moments there about that was, well, you know, it, it, our ground does freeze; it will freeze, but how deep? right? We can control how deep it freezes. If we leave enough residue and we capture enough snow, that's an insulator. And maybe the the frost only goes down six inches. But, you know, if my roots are reaching down two feet, we still have biological activity down there all season long, right? I can control that. So we are doing, you know, soil building activities, even in the middle of winter, if we manage, if we graze it right off and this, you know, there's no trees and the snow all blows away, you got no insulation and your cattle are walking over it, yeah, your frost goes down six or seven feet, but now you've got nothing. So insulation on the soil is a, is a really important part of that too, that it, it uh, allows you that, that biological activity, even in the middle of winter. Yeah. And actually we've noticed it with our worm farms is even if it's solid frozen on the top, there's still worms working through it. Like it's freaky. I'm like, you're just moving there through the ice crystals. They're just happy as. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly learning things up here. We talked about the, a cheap way of measuring. I'm probably the cheapest guy around. And uh, for me to measure, uh, you, I mean, we can do soil tests, we can get all those you know, g- good things. But in the end of the day, what really matters to me is my production, 
right? Are my pastures making more animal days per acre or, you know, whatever measurement tool you're using. So I've kind of developed a, a bit of a redneck, I guess you would call it a rating system. Basically uh, on a rating of one to five, you can go through every paddock and say, okay, you know, in comparison to all my other paddocks, what is this paddock producing? Is it a one? Is it a really excellent one or is it a poor one? Uh, and what's the ground cover like? Okay. Is it really good ground cover or is it poor ground cover? Third one is, a, is it a polyculture, right? Is this one or two species of plants or is it a huge, you know, a nice mixture of all sorts of different types of root systems? And then the fourth one is uh, undesirables, right? Are, you know, what do you consider to be out there weeds? Um, and I don't, you know, we'll go into that weed talk if we want to, but I mean, I don't really consider anything a weed unless it's taking over an environment and then there's the systems just out of balance. So real simple, real cheap, real easy to, to follow. If you go through and rate your paddocks on this scale, and then you come back next year and rate them again, you can compare, right? You can see, well, what, this is what they were last year. And hey, this one's improving. Look at that. Or you know what? This one's gone backwards. What did we do wrong? How do we improve this? So not, not real scientific, but it definitely moves you forward, right? You can tell something, we did something wrong in this paddock. What was it? Oh, guess what? Our graze period was too short or, you know, or sorry, too long, or we came back to it too soon or something. I just totally want to throw a bomb in in the middle you can of do that, that if I can. Yep. <laughs> can I? You can. If if we're looking at something like how many days grazing or you know how much production do we get off that, those are what I call lagging indicators. Right? We we want to catch it before we see that lag, and so, and I find a lot of graziers, ninety nine percent of them are not digging holes, so they're not seeing the impact of. I was bale grazing in here last spring. The ground was frozen. I didn't do any compaction. Yeah, yeah, dig a hole, totally compacted. So if they, if you use a penetrometer or dig a hole or do that slaking test, right, all you need is an aggregate of soil that's maybe like a centimeter in size. Put that into water and look, does it hold its structure together? That is your pre-warning. Because if that falls apart, goes into solution, that's your soil eroding, that's dust, and that's production. And those things will tell you before the grass lags, right? So if you can pack that, if there's something you did in winter, you've got a pre-warning to take action that spring. Otherwise, you have to wait for that whole yeah, but I totally agree with you absolutely on all of those um, plant indicators. We just got to couple it with what's happening below ground and start to be able to take some preemptive action instead of being a reaction, like, yeah, waiting another season. If you've seen my video on my sidekick, there's always a shovel attached to it. So I dig a lot of holes. That's important. <laughs> I dig you. I dig you, Steve. I dig you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh great guys we have a ton of questions that i do want to say all of that can be recorded on a grazing chart so if you guys aren't using a grazing chart yet you should you should get on that <laughs> anyway next up is barbara are you you are ready to go there barbara i see you okay my question is about sandy soil there's some soil on a property that i'm looking at way up north where they are intending to do some swath grazing, but it's, and the interesting thing is that way, way into the, the fall until you couldn't see the grass anymore, it was green in this 80 acre section. And I'm just, I'm just wondering what grazing does on the kind of sandy soil, because this is sand and peat land. Well, if there's grass, 
then we need grazing animals. But yeah, I mean, what we're missing, obviously, with sandy soils is the guts of a sandy soil, which is organic matter. You know, we're not going to see as much organic matter development or potential in a sandy soil, but most sandy soils that we see are, are significantly depleted of organic matter, and that's the potential for livestock to come in and, you know, getting all your grazing management and laying pasture down long residuals all the all of these same practices are just as beneficial on sandy soil and i feel like you have a lot more flexibility on a sandy soil than some people here that are on really really heavy soils that you know can be really damaged by livestock um so yeah i think animals are good steve what did you want to add yeah you bet uh, I, I always say it doesn't really matter what your soil what your base is whether you're starting with sand or clay or Canadian shield, it's your job to grow soil, right? We need to be able to get plants out there, leave residue to hold on to water and get the, you know, the photosynthesis working, the plants push and exudate out through the root systems and convert the sand into soil, right? We got to add uh, organic matter through the root systems, add carbon through the root systems to be able to convert that sand into soil, adding organic matter to it. And then we create this sponge that holds onto water. Okay, so whether you're on rock or clay or, or whatever it is, if we can start building that up and get water holding capacity going, then we start growing more grass and we start growing more soil and it just, it just kind of snowballs from there. So yeah, whether it's sand or clay, it's the same principles. Steve, can you quickly tell the story of building grass on concrete? Oh, we want that one again. <laughs> okay. Uh, quite a few years ago, I had a piece of land and there was a, a fairly big chunk of land out the back side, then some bush, and then a little four or five acre piece of land that was close to the yard. And on that little five acre piece, there was a, used to be a hog barn. So there was this big slab of concrete sitting out there. It was the base of this concrete barn. It was fairly large, but I'm out there grazing it. I'm like, this piece of co concrete is garbage to me, right? It's wasting space. What can I do with it? I don't want to haul it away. So I decided I was going to grow grass on top of it. And what I did was I bale grazed across it one year. I just plunked a bunch of bales right across on top of this concrete and let the cows graze it. Within two years, you could not find that concrete. It was gone. You couldn't find it because I had created a different environment on top of it. And now it's growing pasture two feet tall. So I created soil on top of it. By, I mean, I cheated using bale grazing. Probably about six years ago now, we lost that piece of land to a grain farmer. Uh, the owner passed away. Uh, well, the, the, the husband passed away. And then the wife ended up moving into an old folks home and the kids got it and they sold it right away. And a grain farmer came in and swooped it up and, and now they're farming it. They have yet to try and cultivate up that front little piece i'm really looking forward to the day they do though because <laughs> they're going to find that big chunk of concrete underneath there so yeah that's my concrete story i can grow grass anywhere just give me a, give me a few cows and we can bale graze on it and uh, we'll, we'll grow grass anywhere thanks steve i appreciate that story it's my favorite one of my favorites we have karen up next are you ready to go karen yes ma'am Hi, Nicole. It's uh, nice to see you on again. <laughs> I have an interesting question. I was listening to a podcast. I think you were with uh, John Kemp, and you guys were talking about um, how brassicas inform relationships with, I think it was mycorrhizal fungi that you were talking about. So I was yeah. wondering if you could expand on that a little bit more. Yeah. Nice, nice to see you, Karen. Uh, 
Amber, it comes back to the question you asked at the start, like some of these aha moments, and this story was one of those. So working with some cover crop producers and they had some roots that I think it was a turnip and it was totally covered in this white fuzz and these guys were, the roots were, and these guys were arguing that it was trichoderma, uh, was was mycorrhizae. And at the time, my understanding, and this, if you read the literature and it says that all brassicas are non-mycorrhizal forming. They don't form a relationship with mycorrhizae at all. And it's it's either because they've adapted for high phosphate environments or very, very low phosphate environments, and they have different ways of accessing nutrients and brassicas in this deal. And it wasn't until I came across some literature more recently. So this was like 15 years ago. And I told this guy he was a madman, basically, because I was a know-it-all. Um, <laughs> is that with the presence, so people that are using mycorrhizal fungi with um, a pseudomonas and a trichoderma using those three microbials, applying that, the trichoderma, which is a beneficial fungus that eats bad fungi, so we use it for fungal disease control, uh, can also send a signal to that brassica and open that plant up for basically communication with the mycorrhizae and we get colonization. So we're seeing brassica now showing up with mycorrhizal colonization uh, with this relationship. And these organisms live in healthy soils anyway, but it was a good reminder to me of just because the literature says it's not possible, listen to the farmers. Just listen to the farmer because actually they're the ones seeing this stuff. They're not in a lab. Anyway, yeah. So thanks for that question, Karen. It's very interesting because it's more that it's it's kind of compounds the relationship. So it's like more than just plant and fungi. It's like plant and then another organism and then fungi. That that kind of thing. So it's a relationship that's more a bit more complex. So that's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you look at a lot of studies about mycorrhizae, they're going to do that in sterilized soil with a single organism introduced, and then go, oh, it doesn't colonize. Well, it needs its hosts and its other friends. You know that mycorrhizae doesn't exist in isolation you know there is a relationship with bacteria and fungi there is so so many symbiotic relationships that work but but below the soil it's you know baffling to me how we can try and do research with one component and always look at one thing in, in these isolated it just doesn't work that way in the real world and whenever somebody tells me that that oh this just doesn't work that way i'm like well you know what, if I backed away, I bet nature could figure it out. And that I, I, I kind of go back to that all the time. Half the research that gets thrown out there, I'm like, well, yeah, that's under research situation, but not under real life. So more interested in having some, you know, large scale demos and on farm research done than, than, uh, you know, isolated in a lab. So by, by, yeah, by far, I'm much, much more eager to listen to the farmer that's actually done it. So if I can, if I can add to that, if we think about the the hypothesis that tall grass grazing is rank and animals won't eat it and you won't get performance, that is true in a conventional system. So if you have an overgrazed or overfertilized or compacted environment and you start to increase your recovery length and you're grazing taller pastures, that stuff becomes rank. It becomes 
low quality, you're going to see poor animal performance off that. That is true. The minute that we start to increase microbiological activity in here, what we see is the transition or a shift towards what is called calcium pectins, right? It's what actually increases the metabolizable energy. The bricks will come up, the feed value will come up, and the grass can look the same, right? Well, it kind of doesn't. It's got a a shine to it, but the grass can look the same. And so suddenly we start to work in a biological system and those rules that, oh, you can't get animal performance off that go out the window because we've changed the game that we're playing. And so sometimes I think this is where it comes to, we've always got to be questioning our assumptions, questioning why is it that you believe that? Why is it that you do that? Because it's a dynamic environment. You know, it's always changing. The climate's changing. You're changing all of that. (laughs) Great. Thanks, guys. Um, Susanna Murray had to step away, but they say, hi, Nicole. And they're going to listen to this on podcast. Um, oh. Hi, Nicole. We were wondering about fertilizer alternatives this year for our hay. We normally use synthetics, but the cost is too high. We are looking at using fish guts or something similar, but we're wondering how to apply and where to get it. Unfortunately, we won't be here for your answer, but we appreciate the information. Fish guts. It sounds gross, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, what's happening right now with fertilizer prices and input prices and herbicides, I personally think is the best thing to happen to agriculture. It's going to be painful if we fight it. So looking for what are the potential solutions, you know, so one, why are you growing hay and start there? (laughs) All right. Is that your income or are you having to do that because of yeah, how your operation's set up. So if you're having, if you have to grow hay, I mean, maybe you're doing this commercially or something, then yes, um, any kind of these amino type pro, um, products, fish hydrolyzate. So that um, is a, um, it's different from fish emulsion, right? It's a very complex fish product. We're seeing some really great lifts in and pasture quality, um, pasture storability, pasture sweetness and animal performance um, through the use of things like fish. I would want to go and dig a hole. Like what is actually limiting? You know, a lot of people are putting on fertilizer they don't need to, like potassium. Are you crazy? What are you doing? You know, on a soil test, a soil test measures maybe 0.1 to 2% of the total potassium in your soil. The rest of it isn't even measured. It's the plant that makes that available and it brings it up from deeper down that profile. So if you only have half an inch deep roots, yeah, you've got a potassium problem. You've got a whole lot of problems at that, at that point. But looking for why is it that these nutrients are mobilized? Nobody has a nitrogen problem. You don't have a nitrogen problem, all right? You have a biological problem. You have a compaction problem. You probably have a human problem, right? That we need to be looking for some kind of input instead of have you got beautiful soil structure? Have you got all the microbiology that um, make that nitrogen, you know, worthwhile? There were no fertilizer trucks running across Canada before Native Americans turned up, right? Uh, this idea that we need to be putting fertilizer on is a great sales pitch, but looking for what is actually my limiting factor. And for most of you, it's because soils are compacted or you're trying to drive a monoculture. Yeah. You're going to have some issues. You're doing hundred percent alfalfa. You're probably going to have some soil issues. What do you want to add, Steve? Well, I'm just going to get in trouble, aren't I? No, no, not at all. Not at all. I'm going to tell a little bit of a story about how the other night I put my foot in my mouth, actually both feet in my mouth, big time. Uh, you saying talking... I just put my foot in my mouth? No, nope, nope, I did. <laughs> I, 
I did. Totally unrelated. We're at a, another event and not an agriculture uh, situation at all. I'm talking to these two fellows and I was talking about the mentorship program, whatever they asked me what I do. And so then I, they, they kind of got curious about it. They asked me a couple of questions I'm like, okay, well, I guess we'll go a little deeper. And I, so I started talking about fertility and, the, and they said that the price of fertilizer is crazy this year. And I said, yeah, I, honestly, I cannot fathom why we even have a, ferti- a fertilizer industry. I don't know how it ever started. It, it's crazy. We have a biological problem in our soils, not a fertility problem. If we can get enough polyculture of, of plants out there, we get enough root systems out there, we get enough biology out there, we can get all the fertilizer we need for free. Right. So I went on and I said, you know, can't, can't imagine why we even have this fertilizer industry to begin with. And I found out like 10 minutes later, this guy works for a fertilizer company <laughs> in Port Saskatchewan. So he was really good about it. He agreed. He, he actually works for anhydrous and he said, yeah, it's really dangerous too. Like it's scary to work with this stuff. So, yeah. So that was my spiel. I can say it here, kind of like less risk there, I guess, but I, honestly we have s- multiple lifetimes of nutrients in the soil already. Right. And 97.5% of every plant on a dry matter basis comes from the air. Right. Only 2.5% come from the soil. So we've got to get it cycling. We've got to get it recycling. And we've got to get the soil organisms in there to get it for, you know, the air we breathe is 78% nitrogen. Right. I can't fathom why we would ever buy any. And in, in, a, in the situation that we're in, I'm, for a grazing situation, right, we had legumes, we get the waters coming in like to me the only nutrient i manage on my ranch is water that's it that's all i worry about once i get the water we get the biology coming in the plants start going and i don't need to buy fertilizer i haven't bought fertilizer in 22 years so uh and i've got some beautiful looking pastures out there so um yeah but i did put my foot in my mouth maybe both feet in my mouth in front of that guy so he sounded like he was understanding. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure it's not the first time. I had that happen in a, a big conference event and I hooked up my microscope to the big screen and there were like 700 people in the room and we were looking at compost and this, it was terrifying whatever we were looking at. It was full of testate amoeba and they were like, this is the compost we're looking at buying. And I'm like, don't buy this. They've sterilized it probably with methyl bromide. This is the worst thing I've ever seen. And it was mushroom compost. Well, the, the sales company, not only were they in the room, but they were sponsoring the event. <laughs> like, anyway, I say to people, like, if you're going to get Bayer to sponsor me, I'm not going to hold my tongue. So just watch it. <laughs> <laughs> and those people usually don't sponsor regenerative speakers. Oh, no, they are. They are, are they really? sponsored by Bayer a couple of times in Syngenta. No, they are. They are. If oh, you good. go to their website, that is the home of sustainable agriculture. <laughs> Next up is Graham. Graham, you want to go ahead? Oh, thank you very much for your, your commentary and discussion about the biological systems. I've got a question, though, that ultimately you've got a healthy soil, uh, but you need a healthy business on top of it. And my question is on levered cash. Uh, levered cash is the cash the farm generates before you go to your suppliers for credit or the bank for credit to do what you need to operate. So when you're building your metrics and working with the clients, what are you seeing with the change in that unlevered cash uh, with your clients in addition to the positive changes you're seeing in your, your soils? It's a great 
question. It's very complex and it's very um, individually, like individual specific. But I, I agree, you, we, we can't be in the green if we're in the red. And this is a common situation right now. And what I'm seeing is that some people are wanting to shift from the high input system and being stopped and being stopped either by their bankers or their accountants. We're very concerned about this. Right now, I'm leasing uh, on a property that at uh, the Indulin Ranch, and they had a what are they? They're like the mortgagees for debt. You know, they come around to all the different ranches and farms. I'm sure they have a name. There was a so anyway, they they came in and talked to them, and they said to Roger and Betsy that out of their 300 clients that they work with, Roger and Betsy are their only clients that don't have off ranch income. And for me, that was so telling, you know, we're not requiring that external um, input, you know, and they had to buy their land. They weren't given this land. But what I typically see is, you know, if we're working with a high input producer, I can come in and reduce many of their inputs probably, but I can reduce your nitrogen. I can guarantee this. I can reduce your nitrogen by 30% with no change in yield. Um, Who knows what's going to happen with yield, right? You might have a flood or a storm or tornadoes like I'm never going to guarantee yield but there are things that we can put in place to start that transition uh, whether or not people have finance you know the finances to do that up front I don't know but I've seen um, I've seen producers that I work with be able to quantify like you know significant reductions in diesel fuel use significant reductions in um, fertilizer use etc cetera, etc cetera, um, or animal health bills and yet still have equivalent or if not higher production. So I'm no longer consulting, but in that space, that was definitely a huge concern. So we look for what I think of as the low hanging fruit. What's something that we can substitute to then start generating income, you know, and you know, every place is going to be different. And so many of you are dealing with massive challenges right now, you know, ecologically, market-wise. Although I kind of think, you know, with everything that's happening with like wheat prices, you guys should be in for a good year this year. Oh, don't say that, Nicole. Share with you a little rumor going around. There's a ship that's uh, in Montreal right now that's got caught up in the Russian embargo and Ontario fertilizer producers are facing a $350 ton surcharge because that's the surcharge the uh, federal government's putting on the ship. So. Bear, bear with you, your, your fertilizer cost. Thank you, Nicole. Just, just I would, as you as you go through your journey, please please add the farm management stuff to to your 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 biological expertise. Thank you, Graham. I can add to that a little bit. Sure. If we're if we're going to be environmentally sustainable, we have to be economically sustainable. Okay. I mean, it just doesn't work if you're going to go broke. Um, and I've mentioned it before, but Darren Qualman's uh, research, out of, he's out of Saskatchewan. He talked about the Canadian net farm income over the last well, 92 years. Uh, if you've ever seen that graph, I mean, uh, I've shared it a hundred times on my Facebook page, I'm sure. But it basically shows that the farmer over the last 90, well, since 1985, from 1985 to 2016 is when the, when the uh, study ended. Uh, the farmer took home 2% of the net farm income from or Canadian net farm income, right? So the farmer hasn't made any money. And then this, this whole research project shows that uh, from 1985 to 2007, uh, the farmer took home 0%, absolutely nothing. Like they lived off of off farm income and land appreciation and inheritance, and they made nothing. So what that is showing me is that there's a downward spiral. 
We're on this downward spiral. When do you want to get off? When do you want to jump? Like, I bet there's a lot of people right now that were wishing they jumped off the fertilizer bandwagon four years ago because now they, you know, it takes time to get past this. You know, you, you've got the bankers in your, on your back and you, you've got input prices and it's hard to switch over. I know, I, I know it is, I am not, it is not a one-year deal, but boy, when are you going to jump off? It's just going to continue. Yeah. One more year, right? We always talk about that next year will be better, but will it, right? We've got more extremes in, in weather now. And I just think we got to jump off the bandwagon sometime, somehow, and we've got to understand the margins behind it. And that's where we, you know, in, in my background, I'm teaching economic uh, gross margin analysis. So we can look at those things and, and try and figure out how we can do this with the least amount of damage and hopefully make some profit before four years comes up, right? If we can do it, maybe you got a one year where you're taking a loss and getting things switched over, but hopefully we can get it done quicker than that. But yeah, uh, gross margin analysis is a very important part of all of this. Um, in the uh, Canadian grazing mentorship program that we're developing right now, um, I had the five grazing concepts that I've always talked about. That's what I, you know, I kind of put in there. And the working group that was uh, kind of on this with me, the one thing that they wanted to add in was margins. So we now have six concepts because margins got thrown into it. So I was very happy with that. I mean, that's something that I'm passionate about and have been for years, but they really wanted to throw that in there. The first mentorship program that we did like 15 years ago, what I found then was there was a lot of these grazing experts out there, these mentors that went out there and taught, didn't have a clue about margins, right? They, I went to a couple of tours and saw these places and, and I'm looking at it going, yeah, they're not making any money at all, right? They, they've got the grazing down. They understand the, the, the ecological side of it, but they do not understand the economic side of it. So that's something that we're really putting into this Canadian grazing mentorship program. The economics has to be there. So good question. I'd agree, Steve. Uh, probably a little different set of numbers, but just ran the 2020 and I'm waiting for the 21 stat scan numbers to come out. And yes, you, your, your cash is king. So you've got your, your gross income, you've got your cost of goods sold, your direct materials administration. And yes, there is a small margin there at the very bottom across all Canadian farms. It'll go up and down depending on which sector you're, you're dealing with. But, the, and, but what was really telling is you throw your current liabilities as part of that cash flow against it. And you're immediately you're 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 in the red on a cash flow basis. So even though you're you you may have a, uh, you can play with it if you got to change an inventory and can do things like that. But just the fact that the the margin is fairly constant as you follow it all the way up to the stats, and then the minute you put the, your your current liabilities against it, you're you're starting to look at a structural problem uh, that's that's uh, feeding that to inability for that uh, farm to generate the cash it needs to service not only what you got to pay for on a day-to-day -day basis, but then also service the, the debt or what you've taken on with somebody else's money. And ultimately, you're going to have to pay that back. Yeah, for sure, Graham. Um, I always say there's two sets of books on my farm, right? There's an economic side, which I work out with a gross margin analysis. And then there's a financial side. Those are two separate different books and they have to be monitored uh, separately. I mean, there's a lot well, of cases. Good. Steve, that's good because I was just thinking of, you know, the great big line out of the producers, you know, what to show the IRS and what not to show the IRS. You know. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, a banker will finance you for something that is completely and totally economically unsound. They do it all the time. I've had bankers try and encourage me to get a loan for something that I'm like, that's insane. Like, I'm going to lose money at it. But because you can finance it, they're gung-ho. Whereas in other situations, there's something that could be economically profitable, but I can't finance it, right? The bank won't give me a loan because they don't think I can repay it but I know it's going to be economically sound. So there's two sets of books. And that's an, that's an important separation that a lot of people don't understand. There's, there's two parts to money. You know, it, in your, in your margin analysis, are you're adding then things like your internal cost of capital to figure out what it's costing your business to generate that, that cash flow before you go get somebody else's money. Well, if you tell me how I can figure out how to get somebody else's money, I'm impressed. I'll, I'll come talk to you. Yeah, Graham, we, we definitely have a look at all of that. And we add opportunity costs to all of our equipment that we own, which we don't own a lot of equipment because there's not a lot of opportunity in the equipment. Um, but we, we definitely do. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. <laughs> Thank you for the debate on, on, on herding worms. So thank you. Hurting worms. <laughs> I like that. Um, we'll move on. We have a lot of questions coming up here. So, Etienne, you are up next. Hey, Nicole. There you are. Um, so, my yeah. question is a little bit off topic, but still related to soils. How would you go about, well, recommend going about starting a garden on fresh ground in uh, northern central Alberta? So, basically, an hour north of Edmonton. And I'm on a mm-hmm. fairly strict budget. Uh-huh. And time. I don't want to put any labor that's not required. So just basic amount of labor would be great. No time, no money. I see. Exactly. <laughs> well, a little bit of time, a uh, little bit of money. A little bit of time. You have to build it. Uh, I would probably look into what we call the lasagna gardening methods. So finding um, things like waste cardboard, which I think a lot of us have these days, um, straw, so not hay, but layers of cardboard, layers of straw. Um, You could put some manure in there maybe, and then start to put your food scraps in there and feed worms. So you're building a worm farm as you go. And then when you plant your plants, just plant them with either some finished vermicast or compost into that straw. Um, So you'll need something just to hold it down, but you can build gardens up um, really cheaply, really economically and and be feeding worms and getting rid of your food scraps and be building soil. Like it's a win, win, win. And I don't think it takes too much time. Um, we built one here last fall and it's it's pretty frozen right now, but it's coming through. Yeah. So I, I recommend something like that. It's pretty simple. Cool. And Would potatoes, like, ah, oh, potatoes. Tires with potatoes is a no brainer. Like we should all be doing potatoes. Tires might out off gas a bit, but apart from that. Would using the site where I've been bell grazing my sheep through the winter be a good start, or is it still oh. too fresh or too much carbon to start? No, right you're away? gonna you're gonna build it up with something that's not gonna get hot. So that's why where the straw comes in, straw and cardboard. So lay lay down some cardboard, make sure it's all wet, make sure your straw is wet, and just build it upwards. And you can use um, normal hay bales as the framework like a raised bed but use um, rotten old hay bales as your frame and then they start to break down and become part of the garden too cool thank you very much well Etienne, i got a rototiller to sell you then <laughs> no what i don't think that goes with what you said steve i know I but I, I got a rototiller that I, I got a rototiller that i have no use for so i'm trying to pawn it off on him here help me out to go you'll have to find another fool's money 
<laughs> By the way, Etienne, we do have a video on the YouTube channel that Shorty uh, was the star of, and that is all about his gardens. So I think you'd really enjoy that one. And it's raised bed, so it's really easy to do. All right, I'll have a look at it. Thanks. <laughs> uh, next up, we have Rob. Are you ready to go, Rob? Nope. Okay, I'm going to read it out. So Rob says, how do you grow tall plants and long residue on low organic matter sandy soil in a low precipitation area? Some years we have 400 pounds per acre of forage before the grasshoppers stop start. Every environment's different, right? We all start at a different starting point. Do you start with a little four-cylinder engine or do you start with a big V12? We've got different starting points, but we can change the size of our engine, right? We can we can fix it. The, the best advice I was ever given was actually by uh, Dennis Wabasser. It was the uh, drought of 2002. Uh, they had gone, I believe, about 14 months with zero precipitation. And they're in a dry brown soil zone. Um, best grazer I've ever met and everything was brown and everything was gone. Okay. And the question I asked him, I said to him, well, what do you do now? Right? Like everything was gone. It was a severe drought. And he didn't even hesitate. The first thing he said to me, now we plan for the next drought. Okay. Um, planning for a drought in a drought is far too late. The best time to plan for a drought is on the good year or the good years or all, you know, 10 years previous to what you've already been doing. Um, yes, we just had a severe drought in most of Canada, most of most of Western Canada, most of Western Central States, United States. Everything was dry, right? Okay, now we got to plan for the next drought. It doesn't do you any good to try and deal with what's going on right now. Every year we have to be putting residue down. We've got to be trying to build, you know, carbon into our soil systems to build water holding capacity. Yeah, that's that's my that was the best advice I was ever given. So I've been planning for the 2000 or, or 2021 drought i've been planning for it since 2002 every year i leave residue every year i'm trying to build my soil and just as an example i did my numbers on a couple of different pastures two, two comparison pastures this summer uh one pasture for uh, i'll do the simple form of it uh, we've been managing it for over 20 years and the other pasture we've been managing for about three years Okay, so they both got the same amount of rainfall. We're in a 15 inch rainfall uh, area. So in the growing season, we average 15 inches. Last year, we got uh, just under four inches in the growing season. So a severe drought. The pasture that I've been managing for over 20 years, we still had 94% of its production compared to the, the previous three years, 94%. So that, that land was not in a drought. 10 miles away, the pasture that we've only been managing for three years I did the same numbers uh, compared to the average of the last three years. Um, we had 64% production. So that land was in a severe drought. Okay. Um, we can create our own environment on our own land. It takes time. It's not an overnight thing, but we can change our precipitation, right? We can change our effective rainfall. And that's what we have to do over time. And that's what we got to work for every year, especially on the good years. That's what we're planning for is that next drought that's coming up. So that's my two cents, Nicole. Yeah, there's lots of rabbit holes I could go down, I guess. I'm trying to think which rabbit hole we go with this one. Yeah, grazing management's our number one tool and really looking at how do we build resilient systems? And I'd have to say 98% of properties have been on last year. 
we're not looking ahead. We're not preparing for that next drought. We're not, uh, yeah. And it's really interesting, actually. I was talking to Alejandro Carrillo down in the Chihuahua Desert, and they just did some numbers um, at his place, and his rainfall numbers um, are very concerning, just seeing, you know, what's happening with trends in terms of rainfall. But what was really interesting to talk with him is in the 200,000 acres that he's in the middle of in that desert, there's 2,000 head of livestock being run on it. Out of those 2,000 head of livestock, he's running 500, and he's only got like 17,000 acres maybe, not even that. But what he's seeing in terms of, like he was being, I'm sure he was just being a smart ass one day, but he was like, you don't need anything more than six inches, anything more than that. And you're wasting it. I'm like, wow. And <laughs> he, he had one year where their average rainfall was four and a half inches. You know, it gets really, really challenging to be able to grow anything at that point. But what he's building is this reservoir of soil aggregation so that when the rainfall does land it's sinking in he's if you think every piece of organic matter that you're trampling or your livestock are pooping or peeing out it's all microbial foods but what's really interesting is it's that fungal activity that gets hold of the carbon the hydrogen and the oxygen that steve was talking about before they build that carbon into their fungal hyphae into their bodies and one of the things that they release is hydrogen and oxygen in the form of water so as we have more and more active fungi in these systems, we actually have a system that's breaking material down and releasing water from no water. And if you go back to many old um, colonial, and if we call them colonials in Canada, the, the stories of what people were encountering, these soils were very wet. There was a real sponginess to the soil. There were streams running all over the place. I had a, a client ring me a couple of years ago to complain that he's having springs pop up around his place and it's annoying because he has to change where he's moving livestock. And I told him that's a first world problem. He should complain to someone that cares, but we start to see more and more water restoring in these landscapes and it's biology and it's soil carbon and it's you're laying that litter down and photosynthesis starting to work. You know, one thing, if you have like a bowl of sugar, you notice how you get a crust even in very dry environments on that sugar surface, that's water being attracted to sugar. We're getting more and more sugars in the soil. We're getting more sugars in these plants. We're drawing moisture out of the air. Um, I totally see that we're starting to change our local climate patterns and we're changing how water happens. We've broken our climactic cycles. We've broken our water cycles and we can restore that with a bit of hoof and tooth. If that's your limiting factor, just want to say that for some people, hoof and tooth is not restoring their landscape. Hoof and tooth. I like that. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. Haven't you? I thought you guys were all about the hoof and tooth. <laughs> well, we are, but we just haven't phrased it that way. <laughs> um, next up, we have Jesse. Are you ready to go, Jesse? Hey, I think so. Can you hear me? You sure can. Hey guys, uh, thanks again for the, the chats here. Um, I just wonder if anyone could comment on warm season perennials in a pasture system in Canada. Um, I know when we're talking about cocktail mixes and stuff like that, lots of people talk about having cool and warm season grasses, legumes, forbs, but I never hear anyone talking about that uh, in a native prairie or in a, in a perennial system. And like in native prairie ecosystems up here, there's several common native species like blue grandma and big and little blue stem that are that are warm season and they probably served a role but i i'm not familiar with many i guess tame grass 
uh, warm season grasses. Can anyone comment on that or or how that, that should fit a, a important niche? I put this picture up of Miscanthus. That's actually my mum walking down in front of me. Um, and this was on the property we were living on in New Zealand. Uh, so Miscanthus is also known as elephant grass. I know that they are growing this in Ontario as biofuel. Um, it's a perennial C4 grass. Um, what's interesting about it is they're growing it in New Zealand under center pivots for dairy operations because, uh, you know, you can't put trees in there and you need some kind of shade and shelter for livestock. And what they found was you see significant more growth around these plants because of the edge effect, because of the windbreak that they provide. But it's a really neat grass. And I, I'd be interested to see if anyone has a go planting it. it it's non-invasive, like it only grows. It's sterile, right? Um, that one, I think. It's sterile. That's the word. I'm trying to think what the word was. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, personally, I haven't had a lot of experience with people putting in, except for annual um, C4s. So, Steve, I'd be interested in your viewpoint. Yeah, I've I've used some C4s. I always recommend to people when I'm putting in a cover crop or an establishing. So my cover crops are different, right? When I put in a cover crop, it's to establish a perennial pasture. So what I put out there is I, I like a mixture of root systems, right? So I want some C3 plants, mostly C3 plants, and some C4 plants. I want some legumes. I want some grasses. In my legumes, I want creeping legumes, and I want some taprooted legumes. In my grasses, I want some creeping grasses. I want some bunch grasses. And I want some forbs. I want a mixture of different root systems because that will give me a mixture of different uh, soil biology. So in that, I mean, we're in a cool environment. I, I do always recommend putting one or two, uh, at least at least one or two C4 plants in there. Um, the picture behind me right now, um, I've, I've got C4 plant in there, I think was the main one was Japanese millet. And I was very shocked. I actually got the, the, the bag for free. Thanks, Justin. <laughs> Justin was a seed supplier that I went to. And, and one day I went there and uh, they had some broken bags that they said, just get rid of this stuff. Give, get this. It's been sitting here too long. And I took it home and that's, you know, all, all them nice wide leaves behind me. That's thanks to Justin. So, but yeah, the Japanese millet came great. Um, so millets, sorghums, I would recommend at least putting some of those in when you're establishing a crop just to get a, a variety of root systems, right? One more root system puts out a little bit different type of to sugar that feeds a little bit different type of biology. So yes, I definitely include them in. Now as a percentage, they're pretty small because we're a cool season. The farther south I would be, the higher the percentage I would put in of, of C4 plants, um, but definitely throw them in there. On a good year, they grow really well. And on a, you know, a drought year, like last year, I had Japanese melon in last year and we had a drought. I don't know if I saw very many plants out there of Japanese millet. It just didn't come. So it just depends on the year and depends how it works. But I, I do like to throw that polyculture out there. I think this mix that I, I was talking about was a uh, 21 different species we put out there. And it just fed itself. No fertilizer, no nothing. We broadcast and trampled. So I broadcast it with a quad mounted spreader, but was actually attached to the tailgate of my pickup truck because the, the this field was nice and smooth because it was a... Uh, canola stubble it was easier to drive around and keep all the seed with me and then we turned the cattle out and grazed it you know fairly you know raised the stock density a little bit and they stomped it into the ground we got some rain we timed it with rain and it just took off not a not a lick of fertilizer put on there and it was standing you know three and a half feet tall so that mixture of 
you know, that polyculture of plants gets you a polyculture of root systems, which gets you a polyculture of soil organisms. And then you get all your fertility you need. Yeah, we had a, um, they were spreading uh, switchgrass seeds on the sides of the roads up here. And it struck so well when we had a, when we had a bit of moisture, but you know, that's a perennial C4 grass that grows, grows most, it'll grow up into Canada, wouldn't it? But it's what we're seeing is the, those grasses should be coming through naturally. Why they're not is you are not sending the germination signal to those particular species. What are you doing in terms of management that either sets the scene for diversity or sets the scene for monoculture? You know, um, I think some of the, well, you guys aren't officially monocultures a lot. What I see in, in Canada was uh, dandelion as well as whatever. <laughs> is it smooth brome? <laughs> is it smooth brome? Yeah. So you polyculture is what what is it in your management that's creating the conditions for those to germinate? And we're seeing some extraordinary um, responses with perennial, the, the seed bank that's sitting there is just waiting. It's waiting for you to start shifting something up. Two comments there. Dandelion makes really good wine. So if any of you guys <laughs> have mismanaged your pastures and there's a lot of dandelion growing, I'm telling you, that makes good wine. Um, <laughs> the other comment, too, is that if you love your wife and you're looking for something to seed, seed some flowers or something she can eat. Both things will win a girl over. <laughs> so outside of that next up we have larry larry i see you i know you're ready uh yes thanks nicole for coming on because of steve uh i've been i heard from steve on uh stopping the grass farmer several years ago because of him i bought a pasture full of rocks and i'm in the south we get 50 60 inches of rain i'm embarrassed but I've put out uh, bell grazing and I've wood, wood chips and I've learned to compost on wood chips and put them on pasture. And I'm growing grass on rocks, a lot of clover. How do I increase the, uh, the nitrogen fiction nodules on my clover? I have, I do cover crops almost for two years then I go to permanent pasture and I have used the inoculant that goes with the cowpeas. Does that increase my clover fixing nitrogen nodules? <laughs> It's a great question, and I think, Larry, what we find often in higher rainfall environments, particularly if it has been rocky and people haven't been managing well historically, is these soils can be critically low in the trace elements that the bacteria require in order to form the enzyme to fix nitrogen. And two of those critical elements are cobalt and molybdenum. And what we're finding is those may be the limiting factor to people being able to, to see nodul nodulation forming at all. Um, we did some work through um, Eastern Australia and found that they had none. No, it wasn't showing up on anything. It wasn't showing up in plant tissue tests or soil tests. Not that soil tests are a reliable way to look for cobalt and molybdenum. You want to be looking on a soil uh, on a leaf test, but potentially. So do some trials. You know, you could do a little bit of a seed dressing with some trace elements when you put it down. You know, what we find is on most places, you probably don't need the inoculum unless you're coming into an area that's never had legumes or maybe you're coming into a forestry block or something like that. Um, that inoculant sits in that soil for a long time. So if you're inoculating, then I'd suspect potentially there's something going on with trace elements. And then I'd, I'd put on my diagnosis hat and take a look. Is there something else going on? Like, is there something wrong with boron or calcium? Some of those major elements. Um, 
if you're totally deficient in potassium, then potassium is not going to be able to send enough sugar to pay those microbes to do their work and they won't form nodules. So there's a whole lot of layers to that, Larry. I think you probably heard, but it's get a get a plant tissue test, ask for all the trace elements and take a look at why is this plant not, not able to perform? Or have you got too much nitrogen going on anyway? So if you're applying urea, they are not going to invest in paying their rhizobia. <laughs> I do no fertilizer, but uh, we do commercial composting, so I have the ability to do any kind of tests through a soil lab that's close right. to us. I put out uh, some, raw milk. Sometimes I have good luck, good luck with raw milk and um, sugar. Is that mm -hmm. harming my soil, giving it a boost, or is that helping in the long run? And I also put out C98 sea salt to improve okay. the trace mantles, and that's what I feed my cattle is straight C98 sea salt. You're a man after my own heart, Larry. <laughs> um, yes, we got to we got to watch if we're just doing raw milk and sugar, then we're feeding a lot of bacteria. Now you're going to feed Lactobacillus, a very beneficial bacteria, with milk. But if we just continue to go down that track, then we can start to see soil stru structures collapse. Now you're balancing that because you're using wood chips, so being able to balance the types of foods that are going down. So think. You know, when we're grazing, depending on the time of year that you're grazing and what, how much material you're trampling down, is that very green? You're going to be feeding a lot of bacteria or is it um, more cellulose and lignin? You're going to feed more fungi later in the season. Um, these things can alter. Who am I feeding? Who at the dinner table right now under the ground am I feeding? So think about that. And I love those sea mineral products. I think they're, they, they do incredible things for plants and animals so so sodium is not considered an essential plant growth element but every single microbial cell needs sodium from the ones in every single cell right the ones underground to the ones that are in livestock everything needs sodium thank you i appreciate that but I, but it's it may be a mineral problem the reason i'm not getting the nodules i'll do more digging and do more investigation thank you no worries uh, I'm going to add to that, but not really what Larry's question was. He already gave me credit for letting them grow pasture on rocks, so that's a good thing. Nicole, I would like you to expand on your answer and one part of that. Um, one mm -hmm. of my one of my aha moments that I got from you was the change in bacterial soil and fungal soil, right? So if you have a bacterial soil, highly bacterial, you'll end up getting a bunch of weeds and and maybe go towards monocultures. If you end up having a highly fungal soil, it ends up going towards shrubs and brushes and trees. Okay. And you explained to me one time about how we got to be in the kind of balance that in the middle. So if you've got, maybe just go into that. If you've got a fungal soil or a bacterial soil, how do you get to the middle? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good question. Um, what we commonly find on very intensively high input, high cultivation, chemical sprays, fertilizers, is we all of those things that we talked about disturbance at the start, like everything that disturbs the soil pushes it more bacterial. So if you are up in, like if you're in BC or you're up further higher in the shield, you'll find those soils are very fungal dominated. Um, and then what someone might do is they might come in and they're going to chop those trees down and then they might use a root rake and rip it all up or they might burn it. All of those actions are disturbance. Okay. So you start with a highly, highly fungal soil. 
every step in that will disturb it, make it more bacterial. So bacteria respond very quickly. They breed up very fast. They like disturbance. Think of fungi like soils, kind of quiet and still and low disturbance. And so what you find in some of those soils is if you stopped cultivating and you stopped spraying, a year later, you could have a forest growing back there again, right? And that's that signal for this is this is still very fungal dominated, right? They're very fungal dominated soils. But the more we come in and disturb, so we keep cultivating, we push it more and more bacterial until it becomes a condition that's going to suit our early successional um, weed species. So that might be, what have you got? I know you got dandelion, but you haven't got kosher so much. Canada thistle. Uh, we call it Californian thistle in New Zealand. You guys should <laughs> catch the link all right, so we might grow some Californian thistles. All right, so all your thistle families, they they like those soils to be very bacterially active, okay? And then that, that's changing that the germination signal based on the type of microbiology that are in that soil situation. So we can disturb it so far that we end up in a club moss situation, which you think is the very beginning building blocks of soil. Now, mullen, Patricia, is very interesting because mullen is a high fungal indicator, right? So it's so so some of our species indicate that our soils are more fungally dominated, but what I talk about the constipated or the sleepy soils. So as the soils become sleepy, we start to see um, the rose briars, the brambles, the choke cherries, those kind of species, whereas highly disturbed bacterial, you're going to see chickweed, lamb's quarters, pigweed, shepherd's purse, stinkweed. Thank you, Karen. All of those, right? Very bacterial. So as we get into the sweet spot, for me, this is like if you're looking at a biomass and you're holding biology in your hand, I want to see a handful of fungi and a handful of bacteria to grow grass or even four handfuls of fungi to one handful of, uh, of bacteria. So four to one fungi to bacteria. Uh, we still see some really, really good grass growth in that. But what you'll see are those calcium pectins forming that I was talking about. So quality forage. You'll see perennial grass species now germinating. So what you find is, and this talks what Steve was talking about, is people have very bacterial um, soil environments and they try and plant perennials and they will not persist. And if they do grow, they'll be very stressed. You have a lot of weed pressures in there. So this is why we set the scene with a um, a biodiverse multi-species mix, maybe in your first year, maybe you're going to use some oats. Um, oats are great. They really, they, they are an incredible plant, um, but they're setting that scene. So then next year, maybe you're going to do another annual, but you're going to get more diversity in there. And then the third year, you're going to chuck in a whole lot of perennials and we'll see more success with that than people trying to come in and put a perennial into a very bacterial soil. They will not survive. They will not thrive. Can I jump in? Do you, is there a test for the sweet spot? And how do you achieve that? <laughs> Yeah, so there, there are loads. There are loads of tests. So when I talk about these ratios, that's based on the soil food web protocol. I see Yamili's on this call, so Yamili is now offering some of these testing services. I believe um, in Vulcan. Is that is that right? You have got the test. It's in OEN. It's not in Vulcan. Oh, yeah. It's in Vulcan, but that was to native that's to right. us. But we do more a complete uh, evaluation of the soil, which incorporate other parameters. That is most, with the Kara Soil Health Lab. Yeah. And most of the soils that are being cultivated are pretty much bacteria dominant. 
So that that's, is that's awesome. What, that's what I've been observing. There's a video work. of Yamalee Soil Health Lab, of, of Kara Soil Health Lab on Grow's YouTube channel again. Larry's down in Georgia, though, so I don't know. He's uh, down in the States. I just use the Earthport Lab. I'll put it use the Airport Lab. But growing perennials will get me closer to the sweet spot. Is that correct? Before I sell perennials and Nicole? Yeah, you want to be shifting that more fungal. And so how we shift towards more fungal is thinking about our disturbance. So grazing is a disturbance. Do we lengthen our rotations? You're putting wood chips on, right? That's going to be a complex food that's going to feed fungi. We talked before about fish hydrolysate. I'm a big fan of humic or um, or humate substances. Some of you use biochar. Um, those are all more fungal foods. So either you're laying down a more woody material, cellulose, lignin, um, lengthening your rotations. Those things are all going to help to stimulate fungi and shift it back the other way. So if we look at a typical dairy farm system, or even if you look at what happens in New Zealand, they're on 14 to 21 day rotations. They're applying urea herbicides, all that they feed in that process is bacteria. And as we start to see more and more bacteria in the system, you collapse your soil structure. So now we have weed problems, we have persistence problems, you have, you're going to need more nitrogen in those environments, you're going to need more irrigation. So as we go more bacterial, we start to see systems collapse. And unfortunately, that is what we're seeing across the whole planet right now is systems that are collapsing because all that we're stimulating um, is bacteria and the unfortunate thing is then people shorten their rotations you know they you end up in this really vicious cycle one one more add to that see nicole my problem is the opposite way in my environment we're getting too many shrubs and brushes i mean uh the provincial flower in alberta is the wild rose mm -hmm. and that's what happens to me is i get these wild rose patches coming in so what i learned from you is that if i needed to to if i'm too fungal and i need to get it back to the middle i need to trample green material yep. whereas if i'm too bacterial and i want to get it back to middle i need to trample dead material so that yep. was a, a an eye-opener for me when i uh, i learned that that was definitely from you often the issue with that is that people's pasture sizes are too large Right. And if you look at some of Richard Teague's work, you know, putting collars on livestock to try and figure out how much ground they were covering. Some of these fields, livestock were only, like cattle were only covering like 40% of a pasture. So if your pasture sizes are too large, they're not covering all of it. And then what will happen is they're going to go to the sweet spot, right? They're going to go to where the ice cream is and maybe they're only going to hit that stuff and they start to ignore corners or areas they just don't kind of like or... You know, they've been like, oh, Steve's been over there. I'm not going over there anymore. And as that happens, that soil goes to sleep because it's not being stimulated by the hoof and the tooth and the manure and urine because all of those things are waking soil up. So that soil starts to senesce, get sleepy, and that's the germination signal for your briars. And so the, the secret to that is controlling your grazing. I don't know, getting your kids out on motorbikes and chasing animals around. I'm not saying you do that, but looking at how, how do we get more animal impact? You know, throwing salt blocks into the middle of briars, you know, getting animals into areas they wouldn't normally go. Um, bale grazing on top of sagebrush. We're seeing some great stuff down here with bale grazing. Yeah, bringing in other livestock classes, something. What is it that's going to mix that up so that you're going to get animal impact? Otherwise, it's going to tend that way. And, you know, some places I go to, I'm like, someone should throw a match. 
and just, you know, just, just fire that up. Not like, you know, like this time of year when it's not windy. I don't know if that happens in other places. Nicole, all you need is a llama. And by the way, we have one for free unless Etienne's taking him. Yeah, Molly, you had your hand up. So oh, we'll quickly do that before we go to Shorty. And then we're going to be turning off the recording. So, yeah, I just want to make a, a little comment. It's an observation that I've been noticing. I, in some of the samples that we were analyzing that they were doing some treatment with uh, alfalfa pellet, the increase of fungal a biomass was so high. Not only the not only the, the 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 fungal biomass also also increased in protozoans and nematodes, and it was very interesting. So, is there anyone is interested in start doing this? Please benchmark the soil before, so you can measure what happened before and after when you do those applications. And then it is very, very interesting to see how that could, you know, change the operation. Just knowing what happened before and what happened after you do any kind of applications. That's my comments. Oh, so cool, Yamili. I had um, a client take a lick. So you make a protozoa tea by soaking alfalfa and alfalfa pellets or sweet alfalfa hay. And he sprayed on a hillside, I love Bonnie, which is the name of his wife. It grew like he'd applied nitrogen and it stayed like that for years. You guys want brownie points? Your wife looks out the window and she says, I love Bonnie or whatever her name is, brownie points. <laughs> but that, that effect of those protozoa of the alfalfa is absolutely phenomenal, which is interesting because, yeah, it doesn't necessarily do that when it's growing because of what people are doing management-wise. But an extract, if there's one thing you could go and do, go and make an extract. It's um, super fun. Great. Thanks, guys. This is so much fun. Uh, Shorty, you're up next. Hi, Nicole. Long time, no talk. Um, I have, uh, it can either be a very simple question or a very uh, extensive question. So I'll let you choose. Um, how do soils become hydrophobic and then start to form a surface compaction layer? I can, I think I can answer it pretty quick. Uh, so there's two main factors that will make hydrophobic. So water repellent conditions. So literally your soil is afraid of water. You don't want that. One of them might be from volatile organic compounds. So that comes off specific types of vegetation. Oh, there's three, actually three things. So volatile organic compounds, um, eucalyptus, for instance, makes a lot of these volatile organic compounds. So when they break down, they'll actually create a waxy coating that repels water. Very hot fires will make hydrophobic conditions. And again, that's based on these organic compounds. And the third thing is um, specific types of bacteria. When they get very dry, what they make is a waxy coating to protect themselves and that coating then sits on that soil surface and we see water repellency. Um, I have seen this in Alberta. You will see this sometimes on compost piles. So when compost becomes too dry, have you ever noticed you try and put water on and the water just comes flooding off, okay? And that's a bacterial condition. So they form a waxy coating. The only thing, no, there's two things that'll break that down. One is a liquid calcium and the other one is what comes out of a worm's butt, which is the elixir of life. And in that are four specific microbes that will break those waxy coatings down. So we're using this in Western Australia as liquid extracts to break that waxy coating down. Um, yeah, so very, very cost effective. And for some of you, you've got to go and do an infiltration test and take a look. Is your soil soaking water in or do you have soil that's afraid of water? Bum, bum. 
Can I cut in there? I have a question for you, Nicole and Yamali, actually. Water infiltration tests. I have actually noticed that on what are our better producing pastures on the really good land, as we've been out taking soil samples, the water infiltration sucks and not in a good way. Um, It's not sucking into the soil. It's staying on top. So is there a reason why is that something that you've seen regularly? Whereas on cropland, it actually has great water infiltration rates. What does suck mean? What, by what measurement is suck? About 20 minutes and it still hasn't really gone yeah, down. That sucks. Yeah, no, definitely sucks. Um, what we find is you guys have some sod forming grasses in, in Alberta and some of those sod forming species aren't so great at water infiltration, which is kind of interesting. Um, we also see a lot of thatch layers forming on soils which is interesting because you're saying this is your best producing, but if people have been cultivating, they're going to, you're not going to compare cultivated soils when we do an infiltration test, right? So if it's a no-till, that might be something to look at, but cropping ground, we don't compare cropping ground to um, perennial systems when we're looking at comparing our infiltration rates, but yeah, at 20 minutes, I want to get to the diagnostics and get really interested in that because that is one of your pre-warning systems. So 20 minutes would be something of, Concern. Yeah, I think that uh, 20 minutes is not too bad comparison how, you know, other soils spend hours and hours still. Yeah. But it could be also the layer accumulation that you have there or some roots being all tied out, but probably doesn't allow that water to infiltrate faster. And then probably in you, you get, when you do this kind of infiltration measuring, you do only one time or you do it twice, the applicate the measurement of this one. So probably you do that, the second application in, in the cultivated area is gonna take longer than, than the time that is taken in, in the pasture land. And that probably that could be the reason. I, the other thing could be that it could be some layers of compaction that probably is causing that issue. But at 20 minutes to me is is no bad. I can probably yeah, add to that a little bit background to that. One, our soils are extremely high clay. Um, so they have trouble, you know, if you're not doing good rotational grazing management or, you know, your roots never get below six inches, then it doesn't go anywhere. Right. So that's why it gets hung up so much. As you get better management, we're digging down deeper and we're getting into that clay. And I've, I've found on some of our land that after a few years, we can penetrate through there and get through it. Uh, but also, I, I, I know when Amber was taking those soil tests, it was in our two wettest years ever. And it was already soaked, right? The land was completely soaked. It's got a clay base. Um, I think that had a lot to do with that, Amber. Um, on, on a dry year, that would soak up a little faster than 20 minutes, I'm pretty sure. Our, our rule of thumb is if it takes over 12 and a half minutes for an inch of water, and I count the second inch, right, because we might be reaching, saturate, you know, we're, we're bringing that moisture level up. But, yeah, we don't sample in really wet soils. But anything longer than 12 and a half minutes, your soil is then losing that water through evaporation. So your effective rainfall is much lower. So you're like, oh, I soaked in, you know, an inch. No, you didn't. 
it just infiltrated and it sat in that thatch layer and then it's just going to evaporate. So tracking this stuff is really important because it becomes part of your story. You can say, you know, it used to take 45 minutes and now it takes 30 seconds. And, and that's what we see people doing, which is really promising. Are you saying wind up, Amber? Is this the motion? No, well, we, we should, <laughs> but I'm actually pointing to the two soil samples that are in my background here. So that was the one, the pastures that that was on. So this, the darker one, these two soil samples actually went to Yamalee's lab there. And one was on our pasture and one was on a neighbor's that's continuously grazed. Um, same root depth. Actually, when you look at the, the soil a little bit lower, I don't know if I'm pointing the right way. You can kind of see that there's these cracks and you can see them in the same on, on both samples. And so you can tell that the, the carbon is far higher on the darker one. And that was one of the, the pastures that had the lower infiltration rates. The one on the left is just under 11% carbon. And the one on the right is uh, just over 4% carbon. And that was 12 years of different management. So. Are you showing off now? Is that what's happening? Mm-hmm. A little bit, yeah. <laughs> going off, yes. But we got to shut her down here, Amber. So yeah, uh, we should. <laughs> That's awesome. That's a really good visual. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. Just so you know, we are not shutting this completely down. We are just turning off the recording at this point. Um, And we will continue on with after networking networking in which anyone whose questions didn't get answered. If I don't know if Nicole can stay, but if she can, and I don't know if Yamalee can stay because you're kind of like, you you get to be thrown into the middle of this too now, Yamalee. Um, (laughs) But I want to thank you both for being here. And Steve, of course, thank you as always. Yeah. So we hope to see you and you guys all in two weeks, everyone who's attended and thank you guys all for joining in. Steve, anything to add? Thank you very much, Nicole, for coming here. I really appreciate it. We've got you recorded this time because we missed you recording last time. So we've got you now. Awesome. As always, I really appreciate your insights. Uh, You're one of our regenerative agriculture rock stars, and we really appreciate everything you do for our industry. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Steve. Absolute pleasure to be here with all of you. Gosh, there's a huge turnout. It's absolutely fantastic. And some people I haven't seen for a while. So thank you for tuning in. I know there's lots you could be doing right now, like eating dinner. I haven't done that. (laughs) Good to see you. 